Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover alongside Kyle Crooks and in the center of the screen we have Wes Durham, the voice of the Atlanta Falcons and also known for his work on the ACC Network. And Wes, it's great to see you. We hope we're getting closer to football season for both college and the NFL. How's everything going? It's good. It's good to be with you guys. And yeah, it's been uh, it's been like one of those wild summers where you know, one day you feel pretty good and the next day you're not so sure. And then, you know, by the end of the weekend, you're hoping to get to Monday with, with better news. But, uh, yeah, obviously it's been a, a difficult week in terms of the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and, and all the guys that work out there. But at the same time, too, at least the three other leagues are going to are gonna try to get the ball to the tee. And I, I felt all along, Roger and Kyle, in the college game that that's what they would try to do, uh, and that is play. How long they could go, how successful they could be, I wasn't sure. Um but uh, I, I, um, I'm optimistic now. I mean, I'm optimistic we can at least start. Uh, for a while there this summer, I wasn't optimistic on that part at all. Wes, any word on the NFL side and, and what the broadcast setup mm. might be? <laughs> uh, we've seen these other leagues try and figure it yeah. out. Home games, you're at, the, you're at the park. Road games from a studio. Any idea, any word in what they're thinking in the NFL right now? You know, uh, Kyle, it's interesting you ask that question because that has become a, uh, a very big group text here in the last couple <laughs> of weeks, um, especially once preseason was finally settled, right, uh, that we weren't going to have preseason. Uh, there was a lot of conversation in the month of June that, that television would not go to site. Uh, and I think you saw that with ESPN, right? They're doing baseball from home and, and from a studio in Bristol and that kind of thing. Uh, right now, I think it's... I think we're going to do the home games from Mercedes-Benz Stadium in the case of the Falcons. The road games, uh, I still think it's up in the air. I, I think there's a chance we could be uh, in a stadium, uh, but I don't think that could happen until later in the year at the earliest. And I think right now it really depends on kind of what the best setup is. And, you know, the NFL stadiums that are newer, uh, and pardon me for the ramble here, but the NFL stadiums that are newer have a lot more advanced video and audio digital stuff that makes doing something like a simulcast or a at-home game or studio game a lot easier to do from a delay standpoint um, where we can be more with what is actually happening live as opposed to what happens on the screen for people that watch it at home. So I, I think there's a chance we could be in the stadium there um, at Mercedes-Benz and maybe a control room setup or a booth setup. And I, I really think it's going to be a little different for everybody. And the teams that aren't going to travel all have different reasons. Um the number one thing is is that the NFL, like the NBA, has also created as good a bubble as they can. And, you know, we're all in different situations. Some of us work for the team. Some of us are contractors. Some of us work for a radio station that has the rights. And it makes the relationship tricky, to be honest with you. And this is one of the few things that you know comes up as a result of the pandemic. So home games will be in the stadium. Uh, road games right now, I'd tell you there's a real good chance we'll we'll probably do them from a broadcast booth at Mercedes-Benz or, or some setup like that. I mean, it's going to cut down on your travel considerably if you do, yeah. say, the college TV games from a studio and the road NFL games yeah. from uh, a studio or at the stadium. Um, have you thought about just the technical side of, of doing play-by-play, specifically football, where you have 22 guys on the field? There's a lot of things going on that if you're at the game necessarily, you're looking at, but you can't see on a monitor. Have you thought about what that's going to be like calling those football games off the of TV? Well, so far, you've asked almost all the questions of the summer. Uh, yes, um, because I think you have to be honest with yourself. I mean, you're going to have to look at a screen 
and try and still capture the events of the game, the emotion of the game, the momentum, things like that, that as you guys know, in only some cases you can sense in the stadium, right? Um, so that's difficult. And now even more so because you may not have fans, right? So it, it comes as a completely different option. And I think one of the things that if you're my age at 54 or if you're younger in this industry, I think you always have to understand that flexibility is going to be required at all times. I mean, you know, I started broadcasting in college where I actually did, you know, two or three basketball games through the handset of a telephone one time because that was the only way we could get the connection. And it's funny, I've thought about that a lot more this summer, knowing that I may very well have to do football this year without ever having to go on a plane to get to a game. Um, and if that happens, then that's what happens in 2020. Um, and you try and do as good a job as you can. It's not going to be the same. I've had several conversations with guys in baseball who have obviously done the games when their team's on the road and then their team comes home and they're in the ballpark. And it's a different dynamic. Um, and I've actually done remote studio baseball before on the college level. And baseball is an exceptionally hard sport to do because it's a three-plane sport that you see on television. I mean, you see it from behind the plate when you're live, but on television you see it from center field and rarely do you see the camera from behind the plate, right? So, you know, you, you can't anticipate things. You can't, uh, you know, in, in baseball it becomes very difficult. And I think in football some of those rules are still going to apply too where you got to be careful. If, a, if Matt Ryan drops back to throw a pass to Harry Douglas, or, or I mean to uh, Harry Douglas, who's also on our pregame show, uh, Julio Jones or Calvin Ridley down the field, you can't anticipate that as great as Julio Jones has been in his pro career, it's automatically going to be caught until you actually see him catch it. Um, it was funny because Dave Archer and I had this conversation about watching games and saying to ourselves, you know, we usually can tell when Matt le- when it leaves Matt's hands if Julio's got a chance to catch it. Well, now we won't be able to do that. And that's one of the things. You can't assume anything when you're doing a game in that situation. And that's probably, Kyle, the biggest challenge – of a broadcaster now moving forward, if you're not going to be at site, is to hold off on the anticipation that you normally would have for maybe a catch like that or even a big play down the field in the run game. Because if a guy breaks through, you don't necessarily know if you're watching on television if there's somebody who has an angle, right? Because you may or may not see the guy. That certainly is going to be the case that we're going to have to get used to in the NFL too. Because every once in a while, there's a long run where a guy tracks a guy and you're not real sure if you're going to be able to see that or not. And then, Wes, looking at the other part of your job with the ACC Network and especially mm-hmm. the show uh, Packer and Durham, have you been proud of the way you guys have been able to maintain a show and kind of figure out how to do something remotely in what's really a challenging time? Yeah, we started out obviously last August, Roger, in the basement with Mark and the dogs and having a great time and three hours and you know, here we were on the front end of a football season and, you know, carried over to the national championship in New Orleans and then to the basketball tournament when everything got shut down. So we kind of lost some momentum there when we were off the air for, well, almost three months. We came back June the 8th. And when we came back, obviously I'm in my home in Cartersville and Mark's still in the basement in Charlotte and it's an entirely different dynamic. So technically we had to get used to some things. Um, you know, and ESPN has just done a phenomenal job with uh, remote technical operations. I, I can't say enough about what that company has done to make sure that we're all able to do this and, and function accordingly. But for Mark and I, you know, I think we were very fortunate to do a couple of years of radio before we got into television and we couldn't see each other. 
um, I would sit here in this room with a Comrex and he would be in Charlotte with a Comrex and we'd connect in New York City and, and go at it. And that's probably helped us more than we realize coming back like we have. And for the foreseeable future, that's the way we're going to do the show. So, you know, we're going to get into football and guests and things like that. And there is a slight delay. And I think people at home know that. But at the same time, if you have energy and, you know, you have good content and things like that, and you're able to still laugh at each other occasionally on our show, which we're, we're pretty good at, then, <laughs> then I think we'll, I think we'll be all right. And, you know, we're fortunate right now we're going to play. And that's, that's really where the excitement and the momentum, I think, for ACC fans will be, much like it'll be on the SEC network or, or folks in the Big 12 as we take this. As we start to look at your journey, I think everyone points to the relationship with your dad, Woody Durham, who is mm. the longtime voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels. But for you as a youngster kind of growing up, who were some of the other influences besides your dad that really mm. helped cement the fact that you wanted to be in this business? Well, I think you have to realize that, like a lot of guys, I came to this business in part because I knew my athletic career was going to end at some point. Um, I tell everybody the the best blessing of my life was uh, probably being six feet tall and 185 pounds at 12 years old uh, and wearing the same size shoe I wear today because at 12, I thought I had it licked now. I was going to play basketball. I don't, the, the dirty little secret, and I laugh about this, is that I only played one year of football. Uh, I was a basketball guy. I love basketball, still do. Uh, love football too, but just didn't play it. And when I started playing in high school, I, I enjoyed it, but I got a job in radio the summer after my sophomore year in high school. So the football coach, Bruce Worley, to this day is like, well, you probably made the good decision. Well, yeah, because I wasn't going to play after high school anyway. <laughs> but um, I, uh, my dad was a tremendous influence. And I came back from basketball camp when I was 14 years old. And he um, – he said, how was it? And I said, well, dad, I, my basketball career might be fairly limited. I had gone to a few camps when I was 14 and I said, uh, you know, I might want to start about something, thinking about something else. And I was fortunate Roger and Kyle, because my dad is as good as he was on the air and he was tremendous. The preparation process is, is what got me into this business. I mean, I love the media guides and the cards and the pens and the paper and the execution of the game on paper. And, he did that at a really high level, um, and I, I think that's kind of what drew me to it. Yeah, the art of doing the game and things like that, but the connection you have with fans, the connection you have with listeners and, and people that are involved in your broadcast, the friendships you make, those type things, um, you know, that stuff was that stuff was intoxicating to me. Um, so, yeah, I, at 14, I knew I kind of wanted to do it, but I didn't realize all the tentacles involved, and – so, you know, after being six feet and 185 at 12, at kind of 15, he said, hey, look, you know, if you want to do this, that's fine, but you need to see kind of what it's like. So uh, from, golly, my eighth grade fall, so the time, oh, well, I can count on number of, two hands the number of times I've sat in the stands since I was in the eighth grade. Um, I stood behind him at Keenan Stadium, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. Went to college, did 150 games at Elon football, basketball, baseball when I was a student. And there's some really bad tape there, by the way. Um, and then, you know, it, it was it was just a, a blessed journey. And it has been a blessed journey. Um, and I feel very fortunate that he was there. But to answer your question, his, his thing in college was you need to, you know, you've seen how I do it. And I've shown you kind of the prep process. But you need to reach out to other guys. And I'll forever be grateful for that advice because – you know, some guys say, well, I, you know, I, I got to know 
Eli Gold, or I got to know Jim Fife, or I got to know Mitch Holtis, or I got to know, you know, anybody. How does it, you know, how does it work? And, you know, that was my guy, right? Like Justin Kutcher talks about Joe Buck, who's a great friend of his. And, um, you know, Sean Kelly, who does stuff for ESPN, talks about Joe Buck's influence. And that's great, too. But my dad was also go talk to other guys. And I, I feel very fortunate because not only did I develop friendships with some of those guys, some of those guys became great mentors to me. Um, at times in my career when my dad could help, but, you know, my relationship with somebody like John Ward at Tennessee when I was at Vanderbilt became all that more important or the friendship that Jim and Eli showed me when I went to Vanderbilt or, you know, uh, Mick Hubert at Florida who had just gotten to Florida, you know, a few years prior to that. And he was, and David Kellum at Ole Miss who was upset that he was no longer the youngest guy doing games in the SEC at the time. Uh, you know, or Jack Crystal, any of those guys. That, that, those relationships became really, really valuable to me. And now my relationships kind of go coast to coast, and I'm, I'm thankful for them because all those guys and some of the women who are now in our business really mean a lot to me. Wes, you, you mentioned all those guys that you've kept in touch with and, and mm-hmm. are mentors to you. Any piece of advice that, that sticks out to you the most that you got <laughs> from one of those guys maybe early on in your career when you started getting the bigger jobs? Is there is there something that really sticks out to you? Um, it's interesting you bring that up, Kyle. Um, I uh, <laughs> John Ward gave me a singular piece of advice, which I still use to this day, and I tell the story. When I got the Vanderbilt job, I was 26. And he said to me, he had written me this unbelievably nice letter, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, John Ward, the voice of the Vols, took time to write this letter, and it was it was amazing. I mean, it was it was just incredible. And um, so I called to thank him for the note, and he said, "Oh, absolutely." He said, "If there's anything I can do, let me know." I mean, John Ward's telling me. I mean, seriously. And I. Um, <laughs> I said, well, you know, I said, it's this is a brand new league. I, I've never really, I paid attention to the SEC, but I don't know the league. He said, well, let me just tell you this. Do you follow recruiting? I said, no, not really. And he said, good. I said, why is that? He goes, and even if you do follow recruiting, don't tell anybody. I said, why is that? And he goes, if they find out you follow recruiting, they'll ask you about it every day. And I said, really? And he said, and if you don't follow recruiting, don't start. And I said, why is that? He goes, because there are all these other guys that do follow recruiting. So if you don't follow it, don't start. Your life will be a lot easier. You'll be able to focus on the games, do the work for Vanderbilt. And quite frankly, if you ever work for the school, you'll never be able to talk about it anyway. And I thought, okay. And it wasn't until like a year or two later that that like hit me as, now I know why I don't follow recruiting. And to this day, Mark and I joke on our show, and it's funny you brought that up. Because Mark and I joke on the show, and I've told the story about John saying, don't start following recruiting. And Mark and I, to this day, we don't pay attention to it on our show. And our show's a lot easier. Not that people – and look, there are a lot of guys you all know who make a dollar or two and follow recruiting from the time you know kids are 14, 15 years old. And that's great. But for us, it doesn't fit. And it never really fit for me. Um, and so, yeah, John Ward gave me that piece of advice and – Jim Fife gave me a lot of advice that probably I can't use here. Uh, <laughs> but no, he was, you know, I mean, for forever, you know, one of the great moments I had in my three years at Vanderbilt was we played the SEC basketball tournament in Memphis. And we had a night in the, in the hotel lobby that had Eli Gold, Jim Fife, John Ward, Ralph Hacker, 
Bob Kessling was there. Tim Brando, who I know has been with you guys. I think Bob mm-hmm. has too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just had this unbelievable kind of unofficial, unsanctioned meeting in the lobby bar at the uh, Crown Plaza, I think, right across the street from the Pyramid. And it was, to this day, it's still one of the funniest things because Eli and, and Jim and John Ward started calling the night as the night was unfolding. Well, this person here is coming into the room. I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. And it was just a <laughs> scream. And it was, it's a real treat. And, and years later, I still think of it. So the, the early parts of your journey, once you go to Elon, you, you do some games and Radford's that first collegiate job, right? I, yeah. I read a story about a lost application. Can you can you tell us about uh, that lost. first job? They, did, they weren't going to hire me. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't qualified. Um, they it was a state position, right, with the school. And Radford basically had said um you know, what we're doing here is you've got, you got a job app and you didn't fill out a salary. And I thought to myself, well, I really haven't had a salary. I've been in college. Well, the fact you didn't fill out a salary means that you're probably not going to be qualified for the job. Well, I've done 150 games. I mean, I've done all this work and, um, it just so happens that I had sent a tape to Chuck Taylor, the athletic director and Oliver Purnell, who at the time was the basketball coach and they loved it. So they then, the athletic director, Chuck Taylor, got my application out of the trash in the HR office and put it back into the mix, and I end up getting an interview. And, you know, that shows you lucky and blessed at the same time. Uh, I had done the work at Elon, but and, and I'll say this, the hardest job I've ever gotten was the first one because from that point on, I figured if they had to pull my app from the trash to get me an interview at Radford, then – you know, and it was a great experience. I mean, they didn't have football, but they had, I mean, we did, we started a baseball broadcast. We did women's basketball. I did, you know, obviously men's basketball and things like that. Almost did soccer on radio. Uh, Don Staley, by the way, Roger, who you probably know in Tuscaloosa, was the soccer coach at Radford. Oh, yeah. And, and Don tried to get me to do soccer on radio. I'm like, Don, I don't know soccer. <laughs> well, you got to try it. Like, game lasts forever. How am I supposed to do it? It might be one nothing, right? And he had an unbelievable player, a guy that went to the Olympics named Dante Washington. And I never did soccer on radio. So now it's funny because what does somebody say, what would you like to do? I'd love to do a Premier League match on radio one time. I don't think I'd be very good, but I'd like to do it. Um, and I, every time I think of somebody asking me that question, Don Staley pops in my head. But Radford was a great experience, and I'm fortunate to have gotten the job. And thanks to some connections with Oliver and Chuck, you know, I was able to kind of save it, Kyle, out of the trash can in the HR office. Well, one of my yearly assignments is doing the SEC Soccer Championship on the SEC Radio Network solo, so I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can certainly relate to uh, calling soccer on the radio like that. Uh, but you mentioned some of the building blocks you learned there. What were some of the next steps you took uh, after you had the Radford job to be able to navigate your way through college sports to a Power 5 level? Interesting. Um, well, I, you know, you got to go through highs and lows, and you got to be willing to accept the chase, right? You know, everybody's journey is going to be different and for me um i I probably think to to be honest with you in the summer of 1990 uh i really thought i had a chance to get the wake forest job um you know the job was open gene overby had retired as their announcer and i honestly thought you know what i got a chance in 1990 to, to get this job and i got an interview and it, it went pretty well from my standpoint, but at the end of the day, I didn't get it. And I was crushed. 
I mean, because, you know, here's a chance. I'm going to go to Wake Forest. I'm going to be in the ACC, the league I grew up in, way ahead of schedule in my mind. Um, and it just didn't happen. And I was, I was really, really bothered um, to the point where I thought, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is there something I've done wrong? And it's the best thing to never happen um, because it allowed me to go through that process and not get the job. It allowed me to meet people who understood that I may have an opportunity to be successful in this business, but they didn't hire me. Um, and I'm very grateful because my friendship with Ben Sutton began in 1990. He was actually the associate athletic director at Wake Forest. He and Dr. Hooks, who the AD at the time, were essentially making the hire. And Ben called and told me, he said, look, your tape is good. Your experience is good. He said, but this is just not the time for you to get this job. And little did I know that a guy who I'd met six years earlier when I was a freshman at Elon was also going for the job. And that's Stan Cotton, who's the voice of Wake Forest. And we have been friends since 1984. And we were going for the same job and had no idea. And at the end of the day, uh, not only our friendship is stronger because of that, but our friendship with Ben became very strong because, you know, Roger in college, you guys know, Ben later started ISP Sports, which became IMG College, and now is Learfield IMG. And Ben was a major force in this industry. And we all did work for Ben down the road, me at Georgia Tech, Stan at Marshall, and later Wake Forest. And, um, you know, you learn some things even when you don't get the job, right? And so that was, that was a huge asset. But Ben also knew that Marshall was going to hire somebody a year later. And he introduced me to Lee Moon, and my candidacy for the Marshall job was based in part on Ben's reference to Lee Moon, who's now the AD at North Florida, who at the time was the AD at Marshall. And, um, you know, I was grateful for that. And I went to Marshall where we went to the what FCS national title game, lost to Youngstown State. And I got to work with Jim Donnan, who had, uh, I'd known from his days as an assistant at Carolina with Bill Dooley at the time. And so that was a really good experience. I worked harder in one year at Marshall than I ever thought I would and learned a lot from Lee Moon and the staff he had put together athletically. Um, and then from that, that's where the surprise came out of nowhere. And that was Vanderbilt. The surprise to go to Vanderbilt was I applied for the job because, eh, you know, it's an SEC job. And Eddie Fogler, who was the basketball coach at Vanderbilt at the time, had said to me, hey, you ought to apply. And I said, coach, I don't know. I'm, you know, just I've just kind of gotten started at Marshall. He said, look, he said, it's a unique situation, he said, but it might work for you. And sure enough, I went down and interviewed and went to work. And Ben Sutton was one of the guys who told me, he said, you cannot let it pass. You have to apply for the job, knowing that I might get it after a year at Marshall. And uh, sure enough, it happened. And it was a Nashville's a great city, made a lot of good friends. And it was it was interesting to be part of the SEC. And I think important in my career that I see that side I see another league, not just the ACC, because even though I was only there three years and I've been in the ACC now 25, I still think of the valuable you know, things you did in those three years at Vanderbilt, both football and basketball and within athletics to, um, that, that have probably benefited me as much now as they did when I was doing them there. 
And you get to Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt in the SEC has had a tough road, especially in football. Yeah. Some good basketball glory throughout the years, but uh, and sure, the years you were there, uh, kind of a tough go of it. How did you mm-hmm. kind of learn how to stay positive, even if things weren't going as well for the Commodores? And I'm sure a lot of that experience has served you well all throughout your career, no matter what team <laughs> you're with. Are you talking about? Are you talking about uh, my second year at Vanderbilt, where they lost? Uh, let's see. 52 to nothing to Florida and then the next week 62 14 at Knoxville they, oh, yeah. they were outscored essentially 114 to 14 um yeah well let's put it this way when Rico Francis intercepted he Schuler at the four yard line with Tennessee already leading seven to nothing on the way to a 62 14 win it ended up on radio at least on our broadcast being a hell of an interception right I mean you know you made it sound like he was he was going to win the Super Bowl but yeah I, I think you learn things on air and off air on air you learn to to keep the broadcast in front of you and uh if we get away from this and you don't ask about 28-3 in super bowl 51 uh it's coming okay (laughs) well and that's and people say all the time how'd you get through 28-3 in super bowl 51 and believe it or not 62-14 in knoxville 52 nothing in gainesville 65 to nothing the last vanderbilt football game i ever did Tennessee beat Vanderbilt 65, a five and five Vanderbilt team with a chance to go to a bowl for the first time since, you know, Ronald Reagan's first term and they lose it right to freshman Peyton Manning of heaven's sakes. I mean, young Roger was really happy that day, by the way, I I understand (laughs) 65, nothing. I'd have been happy too. You, you were in the front yard by the second quarter. It was 48 to nothing at halftime. Um, but those games, believe it or not, all add up to how do you handle 28-3 in Houston at the Super Bowl, right? And that's, believe it or not, that's what you take from those. How do you interview the coach after the game? How do you talk to players? Where do you start? Where do you create the silver lining? You don't want the water thrown at you. You want to be able to get through it and do your job. You got a job to do. No matter how the game goes, you have to kind of finish the game yourself as an announcer. And I, I think that was one of the things that, Believe it or not, at the end of the day, really was important to me to go through the Vanderbilt experience knowing that somewhere along the way you might need it. And sure enough, I did. And it's hard not to be emotionally invested when you're a voice of a team. Of course, you're the voice of the Atlanta Falcons. So let's bring it to that Super Bowl, 28-3. to <laughs> Okay. I mean, first of all, how do you control your heartbeat and kick off of a Super Bowl? Because it's unlike anything you've called before, I would assume, uh, how do you control the emotions going into an event like that? Um, well, you got to find calm somewhere along the way. And when they won the NFC title game, well, I, I will say this too, first of all, I'm not quite sure how a guy ever goes and does the Super Bowl with only one week. I mean, I know we hear about the players all the time, but the broadcasters, it's the same deal. I'm just not quite sure how you go from winning on Sunday to doing the game the next Sunday, like leaving the following day, that type deal. Uh, because 48 hours after Atlanta won the NFC title game against Green Bay, it was absolutely bonkers with, like, how are we going to do this? What's going on here? When are we leaving? X, Y, and Z, right? And I made an early decision that I wasn't going to go the whole week. So it was important to kind of get all the preambles set up early. And, Kyle and Roger, here's the other thing, too. To quote Frank Herzog, the old Redskins announcer, it's the biggest game in the Western Hemisphere, okay? (laughs) And everybody knows it. And we had had a former program director here in Atlanta who had kind of had, you know, was the producer of our broadcast for several years, and he had left a couple of years prior to the Super Bowl trip. 
And he called me midweek, and he had done the Buffalo Bills four straight Super Bowl trips as a producer. And he said, you'll be fine. Have a great show. No problem. He said, but don't forget they record every word you say for the rest of your life. And I thought to myself, whoa, okay, just the rest of your life, not like, you know, the next 20 years. He said, every word of your broadcast will be stored for the rest of your life. Okay. And after you quit thinking about that, you can get ready for the game. Here's the other thing, too, I learned. And this goes back to prep for any of us doing games. At some point, you have to put a fence up and say, look, I can't get to all the Super Bowl material in a prep, right, for a game. You just got to do it like the regular game. And then as the game evolves, you go, okay, well, if, if okay, it's the largest lead in the Super Bowl, bang, I need that. Where do I go back to find who else, you know, was involved? Oh, it's the largest blown lead in the Super Bowl. Where do I go to find that? First overtime, where do I go to find, you know, all those type things. So you have to grasp the obvious and leave the abstract on the perimeter, outside the fence, if you will. And that's a valuable lesson. And I think if you do, and I've been fortunate to do the national championship on radio at Georgia Tech in basketball. I did the team stream for Turner during Carolina Villanova for TNT. Um, And I've done the Super Bowl. And to be honest with you, I learned a lot in each of those broadcasts about that fence and where you put that fence up to say, okay, this is about all I can do at this point until the game starts. And that really becomes a big part of your prep during the week. And then when the game starts and your team's winning, it's the greatest game in the world. It's the greatest game in the world. You've got great moments. You've got great plays. You've had huge plays. And then when it starts to slip, you know, my dad at the time was not doing well from a health perspective, and I knew it, and he was watching the game. And somebody had sent me a picture uh, of my dad watching TV at the Super Bowl at my parents' house that night. And it was ironic because about the time I got that picture is when it started to kind of slip for the Falcons. And I thought of something my dad had said to me my senior year in college. And my career broadcasting-wise at Elon had ended on just just this unbelievable play in a NAIA district basketball tournament. And so my dad and I had lunch the next week at the ACC tournament. And he said, I went over to Network, by the way, to see if I could find a job. And we ended up eating lunch. And he said, tough game the other night, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you, you learn a couple things in games like that. Number one, you stay in the business long enough, you'll see everything once. Okay, fair enough. Second thing is, no matter what happens in a game like that, win or lose, your job is you got to get the game to the house. you got to finish the broadcast. And those two things, after I saw that picture, started resonating in my head. And to this day, I'm thankful that somebody, my brother sent me the picture. And for the fact my brother sent me the picture, and I had my wife at the game in Houston with me that night, and she was more in the dumps than I was after the game. And that, that, believe it or not, helped too because I realized the impact of kind of what was happening around me, and it was able, I was able to kind of process it a little quicker and move on. And you know, the fact that I was able to think about my dad more after that game than the tough loss in some respects also helped me a ton too. Let's talk about your father, legendary voice of North Carolina for four decades. What kind of legacy do you think he leaves on on broadcasting and specifically collegiate broadcasting? What do you think is his lasting legacy when it comes to being on the mic? Well, you know, it's interesting. Now that, you know, he's he's he died two years and a half ago, two years roughly. Um, He retired in April of 2011. So nine years retired. Um 
you know, the people that have heard the calls, they've heard Jordan's jumper in 82. Um, they've probably heard the Connor Barth field goal when they knocked Miami out, things like that. But my dad's legacy at Carolina is, is his loyalty to the institution. And I think when you stay at a place 40 years, you become the fabric of that particular institution. I mean, you know, I'll use John at Tennessee as a great example. Uh, Kaywood Ledford at Kentucky. Um, Jack Crystal at Mississippi State. I mean, I can go on and on and on with guys who have, you know, Mick Hubert's done a phenomenal job at the University of Florida because he's been there, what, 30-some years now, right? And I think you do become the fabric when you stay 20, 25 years. You cross that generational bridge to somebody else. You know, you become not the grandfather's announcer. You become the father's announcer. And then if you stay and you become the grandson's announcer, you see what I'm saying? That's that's kind of the thing that my dad did, that Larry Munson did at Georgia, Bob Fulton at South Carolina, um, you know, Bob Harris at Duke, who went to high school with my dad. I mean, all those guys. And those are the guys that, to be honest with you, one of my best friends in this business is Don Fisher at Indiana, who's getting ready to start as well. If the Big Ten were playing 46th year, I think, of doing IU and. Don's crossed that generational bridge a bunch. And I think that's really kind of your legacy at the end, Kyle. I, I think as much of the great calls and the great wins, you become that trusted voice. And it, it's a term we get we throw out a lot in this business, but you really do become the trusted voice. Um, you become wildly more popular than the guy doing the game on television in an age now where people want to be on television because there's still the generational tie. And I've been doing Falcons. This will be my 17th fall. And I've actually had guys come up and introduce me to their kids. And they'll say, Wes has been doing the Falcons all my life. Well, no, only 16 years, sir. Thank you very much. Um, But that's all he can remember. He might be 24, 25, and he has a child, but he remembers the last 16 years. So when you get to that trusted voice uh, status, I, I think things change. And my dad's legacy is one of loyalty to Carolina for sure. He went to school there. Uh, he did everything he could to help the university beyond athletics as well. A lot of academic work, a lot of work in terms of fundraising. But at the same time, too, he was awfully proud to be a part of that, of that, you know, that package, the University of North Carolina. Um, and he cherished the relationships. Um, and it's been amazing since he passed away, the number of former players that have contacted me one way or another. And if, whether I'm doing a game or whether they see the show or, or hear something like this, the number of guys that have contacted me with stories about my dad is uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable and, and very heartfelt from our family. And looking at that role, being the voice of a school or like your part, you've been the voice of a school, several schools and an NFL team. You've also got right. to see it really evolve over the years because in your early days with Radford, Marshall, Vanderbilt, and even Georgia Tech, not every game was on television, but then you kind of were able to go through the transition of games all being on television and social media is around. Just how do you think that role has changed, especially for younger broadcasters who didn't have the chance to be kind of the voice of the team in the pre-TV or pre-social media age? Like yeah. what's next? for that role at these different schools? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, and, and my answer may be different today than it would have been a year and a half ago, right? Because I think really, you know, I look at guys like Jones Angel who replaced my dad at Carolina, um, you know, in, in a scenario where there's certain things Jones is doing that would have been just a foreign territory to my dad. Um, and I think there, there are other guys like, you know, Dave Kane at Virginia, who I'm thinking of, or, um, 
You know, I see Neil Price at Mississippi State. Guys who are doing things that I think you have to do now that are enough old school but also give you new school technology. And I think one of them is a podcast. I, I really do. I think that if you're the voice of a team, you kind of got to engage in the new technology to connect with people who are going to digest your product in a different way. I think one of the things, and Tom Bowman at Learfield is going to be upset I said this, I think one of the things that schools probably have to do in the near future is find a way to do condensed games and release them two days later, you know, where they're in a podcast form. Because I think people now, to your point about in a television age, Roger, I think people now are watching games in an entirely different way. They may not necessarily be listening because the technology with simulcasting the radio and syncing it up is not as easy as it used to be. I mean, it's really, you know, I've heard guys say, well, I take the TuneIn app and I, you know, connect it to an HDMI cable into my television and then I back up the TV. I mean, it's like you're doing, you know, back one and a half through your living room in order to get the game synced up, right? Um, So I think that actually when you put the games on a podcast, the way to feel the game is to let them hear it again. And the way people now, again, I'm saying this and we all may be working remotely here out of the pandemic or whatever the case may be. But I still think there's a way you can put this in play where people still get to enjoy the value of the product, um, not only for the fan, but also for the sponsor, because that's going to be a big part of it, too. What can you do to enhance the value of the sponsorships that are involved in these multimedia packages? But CTV also is adjusted there, too, because like the conference networks, find ways to take games, condense them down, and replay them during the week. It would make sense to me you do it on radio. But I think if you're the voice of that team, you need to have a presence on the website. You need to have a digital presence, be it with a podcast. Um, I think the coaches show, you know, no offense to what they did at Alabama or any of these other SEC or ACC schools, but the coach sitting there drinking the Coke and eating the, eating the Golden Flake potato chips, that's, that's not the deal anymore you got to find something to lock in guys and lock in fans to see your program. And if you're the voice of the team, you need to come at it almost like a five-tool baseball player. You need to be able to do a little bit of everything. You need to understand, A, how to do the games, how to prepare for the games. But you also need to understand new technology. You need to understand the business side of it, I think. I think understanding multimedia rights agreements and the fact that I did that at Radford, did it at Marshall, understood it at Vanderbilt, was involved in it at Georgia Tech on a – on a pretty heavy level. I think if you can understand what a multimedia rights agreement is and you're a part of that, I think you've got a tremendous advantage. And I think, and you guys probably know guys that do minor league baseball who sell the advertising and do something else in addition to the games. I think that's going to be a tremendous advantage as, as we move forward in this industry, because let's be honest, it's all going to be based on the economics of, of whether it's doable or not. All right, we've gotten to our favorite part of the show, and we're talking about prep, and we're talking about charts. Uh, if Told you're no. talking some football, uh, what's important for you to have on your football chart, and how's it organized? Uh, okay, well, I've got two different kinds, and I'm glad you called me to go get these. Um, all right, first of all, this is a preseason chart for the NFL, and it's a mess. But you try and keep the same preseason chart. That's the offense, and there's the defense. Um, now once we get to the regular season in the NFL, it kind of looks like this. Okay. It's much more condensed than you're going to say in a second, you're going to say, wow, that looks like a college chart. And you're right. Um, because the college chart, and this is a TV game, so it's not nearly as advanced from note situation because in, in, 
in TV, it's the analyst game. In radio, it's the play-by-play guys game. So the TV chart in college is basically, you know, same type deal. For me, the uh, basic facts and filaments of the game in football become this. Uh, I have to have this in front of me, tape down. And that's a drive chart and a scoring summary. And this is, if you're saying, well, where'd you come up with that? This is stolen from my dad. He had a drive chart and a scoring summary. And it helps you just keep track of how many times the teams had the ball, where they started from. I've expanded it now to where I put notes on there about red zone or turnover margins or things like that. I also do uh, one of these every week, and that's a game card. It's basically, and this is the Falcons and Saints, so it's how many times they've met. It's team stats right here. Uh, what what else is on the schedule? What have they done? Notes about the series, things like that. I mean, it's it's pretty elaborate. And it's all color coded because I'm that guy in your neighborhood who has to have everything a certain color, and I have lots of torn up cards. I also do individual team cards, and if you see it highlighted, that means they lead the team and are probably ranked in the NFL in that particular category, which is good. Um, and here's the Saints, and if it's in red, you see it highlighted in red on the Saints card. That's what they did the first time they played. So, you know, you kind of get an idea of, of how it sets up. Um, also on radio, and Roger, you know Chris Stewart, so he may have told mm-hmm. you about this. This is the written play-by-play I keep in front of me during every game. And I have a system that it's kind of rogue, to be honest, but it allows me to keep third downs on the fly. It allows me to keep drives, summaries like that. I transfer it. The scoring summary, obviously, to the other card, but it also allows me to go back and say, you know, like Atlanta had the ball for 16 plays and punted three times, and then on the fourth drive they ran four plays after an interception and scored their first touchdown, you know, that kind of thing. It it just allows me to communicate the game quicker. On radio, you have to remember that people are only listening to an average. They're listening to the game, and that's the beauty of the way they measure radio now, right, especially in bigger cities. In Atlanta, we're able to break down a game to a ridiculous detail. Um, and we knew the year Atlanta went to the Super Bowl that people were listening to our game for an average of nine minutes. So it was important in my head that like every other possession, I might reset the game, keep people locked into the game. The other thing that fans will always tell you is time and score. People get in and out of their car a lot on Sundays. And then there's the occasional guy that mows his yard or plays golf. Now the, the invention of the Bluetooth speaker on a golf course might be our best friend in the NFL because Dave and I hear from a ton of people that are playing golf on Sunday afternoons and have our broadcast going in their golf cart off an app or something, which is, you know, that's, that's not only a hell of a compliment, that's, that's a commitment to listening to the game for sure. So, but that's the secret to me. Basketball is a, it's a quicker prep, but it's also the same thing. I keep score. I keep the points and fouls for each individual player and team fouls uh, during a game in basketball. And I do a game card like I showed you there. Uh, I do that for basketball as well. So the basketball prep's obviously a lot, a lot quicker, not as time-consuming. Football prep's something I love, though. I think it's always fascinating to, to dive into these guys and, and kind of find out what their team is and, and you know what are the five storylines that in TV we want to cover or on radio we want to hit. And that's it's always a great story. And and you know the games may end the same, but they come together in different ways for sure. A quick follow-up to what you said about measuring who's listening. Uh, I'm always interested. Do you get the numbers back to you on, on who's how many people are listening to a Falcons game on a Sunday afternoon a, across all platforms, like a cumulative type of listenership? 
That's a really good question. The answer is no. Um, we've never gotten the digital uh, in terms of who pays for the NFL audio pass. We don't, we don't know those numbers. I guess the team would, but nobody's ever shared them with us. I do know the NFC championship game, we had a 71.3 rating in the Atlanta market. Wow. So the game was on TV, but we had 71% of the market listening to us that day. At least that's what we were told. Um, which was, uh, if Atlanta, if the ADI in Atlanta is 23 counties, by the way, uh, or 18 counties, it's now 23. They measure it in 23 county range. Um, so it's one of the largest radio ADIs in the country. Uh, so 71% of the market was listening. That's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 6 million, five and a half million people. So we felt like they really wanted Atlanta to go to the Super Bowl that day. And it just so happened that Dave and I were doing the game. <laughs> Let me ask you, too, about time management, and you showed us all the prep that you have, yeah, having to yeah. do two football <laughs> games. I mean, the amount of prep that goes into one football game, even on the radio side, where it's most of it is bare bones. It's it's time, score, description, or TV, it's, it's much more involved. But mm. having to do two football games in one week, how in the world— do you do you keep everything in order and manage your time so you get everything done by the time that college game kicks off on Saturday? I don't have time for the broadcaster's hour. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> no, I uh, no, I'd make time for you guys. Uh, I think that I think what you have to do is you kind of have to schedule yourself and you have to create somewhat discipline um, about your prep. For me. You know, had we had normal preseason, I would have a game tomorrow night. Okay, there'd be a game tomorrow night or tonight. In fact, if I look on my calendar here, i got to figure out which one it was because once they told me we weren't doing preseason. All right, so I would have had a preseason game tomorrow night against Miami. Okay, Um, and I'd pull up that preseason card, and I'd be working more on Miami than I would Atlanta because I would have been at training camp for two weeks. And I would have had my Atlanta card already built. And I would have kind of seen the rotations of offensive and defensive lines. So that, that kind of tells you how you get ready for preseason. But on a normal week, Kyle, you have to have stuff ready when you wake up on Monday morning. So the last thing I do when I leave on Thursdays is, like, I travel on Thursdays for TV. Or I used to travel on Thursdays. I don't think we'll travel on Thursdays anymore if we travel. Um but before I left to go to the airport on Thursday, I would pull off the depth chart, literally the depth chart and the roster for the NFL team that the Falcons is going to play and the two opponents I was going to have the following week in college. Okay, um, And I'd put it in a manila folder and I'd walk away. But at least I knew I had it. Then when I got to the airport, I would download the notes of the NFL opponent and the two teams I was going to have in college. Okay. So when I woke up on Monday morning, I was ready to build charts. I was ready to build the NFL opponent. I was ready to build the two college charts. Uh, Then on Monday, we would typically have a production call for TV of the game we're going to have Saturday. So that allows me then to at least hear what the producer and the director think of what we've just done and what we're going to do. You know, what do we want to carry over? And the analyst and sideline person, very important to me in the television prep. It's really more of them telling me things and then, you know, I kind of build my prep geared to what they think is going to be important. Tuesday is probably a production day. I know it's an off day for the NFL. Uh, if the NFL is complete on Monday night, then you can go online and pull the updated stats on Tuesday morning. 
uh, and you can go ahead and build your team cards and get that prep out in front. You do a lot of reading each day, probably an hour and a half to two hours of reading each day. Believe it or not, the don't ever tell the SIDs this. The media guides are important, but the notes are far more important. Some people send you enough. Some people don't send you enough. And then if they don't send you enough, you got to go back and dig in. I also watch tape Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I try and watch the team the Falcons are going to play. I don't watch the Falcons' last game uh, because I just did it. Um, and then I'll watch the two teams that we're going to do on Saturday in the college game. That happens before Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock because usually we have our first conference call with the opposing team either on Wednesday or Thursday morning. So I want to make sure I've gotten through that particular team's games before I have the call, even if we're doing the opposing team first. Um, so it, it kind of processes itself on Wednesday night. It's a late night typically, not a lot of sleep on Wednesday night. Thursday morning, I get up, I do the show with Packer, come back, pack, um, get my bag ready, um, think about you know which, I'm, which way am I going to go to the airport. And then when I lived in Cartersville, it was easier because Vicky and I would have lunch together and then I'd go to the airport that afternoon to fly that night. And believe it or not, I'd get to the airport ridiculously early for my flight and go to the Delta Sky Club. And I've seen several of your guests at the Delta Sky Club uh, and, and work on the game and, and at least have in my mind the game. And no matter how long the flight was that night, I would always unpack my gear when I got to the hotel on Thursday night and lay it out. And then that would mentally remind me kind of what I had to do the next day, either NFL or college. And I'll be honest, early in the year, it's a longer process. It takes a little longer every year to get ready for the first couple of weeks because you're re resetting kind of the way you do it. And this year without preseason and, you know, kind of the unknown of the college game, it, it's going to require a commitment in time because you're going to have to actually start out and think about it and, and say, okay, I didn't have preseason NFL this year where I had to try and create, you know, cards for – two teams of 80, 85 players. So that's that's going to be a little trickier, I think, plus the unknown of, like we said at the top, how we're going to do the games. That's that's going to make this unique, too. And looking back at all the years you've been doing two games a week and travel, getting ready for a Saturday game, college, and then an NFL game on Sunday, just what mm. are some of the closest calls you have had or some of the crazier travel stories you've had trying to make sure you get to both? Uh, outside of a cop in Seattle telling me I couldn't get out of a car because I was going to break a city ordinance. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. All right there. <laughs> well, essentially Georgia tech, this is early too. This is, um, this is my second year doing the Falcons and, uh, Georgia tech had played. And I told Dan Orlovsky this story cause he played in the game. Uh, Dan Orlovsky and UConn were playing, uh, Georgia Tech at Grant Field in Atlanta on Saturday night at 7 o'clock on ESPNU. And the next day, the Falcons were in Seattle. And so we did the, I did the game and uh, got up the next morning, uh, got to the Atlanta airport. Flight took off. Perfect. Everything worked out great. Landed. Perfect. Uh, at that time, I was trying to schedule ground transportation wherever I went. So I'd get a service to say, okay, I got to go from SeaTac Airport to CenturyLink Field or whatever it's called now. I think it's still CenturyLink. And they sent on Sunday morning, you get, you don't necessarily get the A++ drivers, even for services, right? So this guy got in the, I got in the car and Joe Person, who now writes for the Athletic covering the Carolina Panthers was covering Georgia Tech at the time. He was on the flight. 
And we got in the car and I said, Joe, you want to ride? He said, sure, that'd be great. We got in the car and the guy went the wrong way on I-5. He went toward Tacoma, not Seattle. And by the time I looked up and I was sitting there pouring over things and looking at cards and make sure I had my stuff, my credential, everything. And I look up, we're going south on I-5. I'm thinking, oh, no. I said, we're going to the, we're Seattle. Oh, yeah, Seattle. So we turn around and by the time we go back to the stadium, he drives us right into traffic. I mean, literally into the game day traffic. And this was a close call to start, and it was getting closer with that mistake. So he then drives us literally from one piece of traffic into, like, midtown Manhattan traffic around the, around the stadium. And I finally looked at Joe and said, Joe, we're going to get out of the car, and we're going to you know, hustle around the corner and see if we can get – because we were literally on the other side from where we had to go in. And Dave Archer's texted me, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. What am I doing? And so I uh, – I open the car door and there's a cop and the cop goes, you cannot get out of the car. I say, excuse me. He said, you'll break a city ordinance. You cannot get out of a car, a moving car in traffic car has to, you have to find a place to park or pull over safely. And then you can get out of the car. Well, there was no place to pull over. There was no place to park. So we're in this traffic. So we rolled probably another, I don't know, 80 feet. And I said, Joe, we're going to make a run for you. He said, what about the cop? I said, find us in the booth. <laughs> and so uh, I got out, and the cop yelled. And I said, a radio booth. And that's all I said, and I just kept moving. And we got there, and I tape everything down, like some broadcasters do, tape stuff on the table and things like that. I walk into the booth, and as the teams are uh, breaking kind of the huddle after the national anthem, and Rich McKay – Bless his heart. The president and CEO of the Falcons is sitting there. He goes, I thought for sure this was the one that was going to get you. This was year two. We're going 14 more years. Uh, and I tape it down as they run on the field for kickoff. Literally tape it down. And, and Dave Arch, we're in a break. And Dave Arch is looking at me like, we cannot continue to live like this with you. I said, you're right. We can't. Um, it actually worked out good. I've almost missed. I've had three Delta flights held legitimate three Delta flights have been held. None of them, believe it or not, since I've been in television. Last seven years, no flights held. These are all Georgia Tech issues. They were charter, take forever to load. we got to put people on planes. I mean, you guys have traveled with teams. It's insane how, how long it takes. Oh, my God, we sit on the bus for days waiting, right? And uh, everybody on the Georgia Tech charter, Paul Johnson to this day laughs at, I was going to San Francisco or Seattle again. Seattle, always the problem. Flying out of Raleigh after we had beaten NC State, we get back to Atlanta, and my plane, literally as we land, is supposed to take off, and the Delta charter coordinator has a car set up from the minute the plane gates to take me three concourses over, one of the A to E's in Atlanta. Land in A, he's going to take me to E, and I run up the outside of the gate, the, off the concourse, or the tarmac rather, up those metal stairs, just like you get on a charter, and I get on the plane, and the lady scans my boarding pass standing at the gate, and then she shut the door, and I sat down, and the lady goes, I don't know who you are, but you must be really important because we've been waiting 10 minutes. I was like, <laughs> thank you very much. So I, I, I don't miss those, <laughs> believe it or not. Those are high stress. My wife sweats them out with me. She's texting me, are you going to make it? Are you going to make it? Well, I hope so. Um, but when you sign up for this, it's, it's kind of the rush of doing it, and i got to be honest, the first few years – I didn't think about it like I do now. And when you guys ask questions like that, I think, you know what? Knock on knock on wood or some semblance of it. I've been fortunate to I've been fortunate I haven't missed one. 
Uh, Gene Deckerhoff, you ever have him on here? We want he, to. We will at some he, point. Yeah, he's missed. He's missed a couple. Gene, Gene, <laughs> Gene is probably the guy you need to go to. Well, I could uh, Washington to Boston. My God, you'd never know. I mean, you know that kind of thing. So. Uh, he didn't get to fire the cannons in the first half of a Bucks game on a Sunday one time. I do remember that. So, But I'll let him tell that story. That sounds good. Well, anytime you have a close call or you're rushed, you have to go back to your fundamentals, it seems like, when you're calling play-by-play. So for you, what are the fundamentals when you're calling football on radio that is so important to you each and every time you call a game? I think you've got to be – it's it's real simplistic for me, Roger. I think it's down in distance. I think it's um, – Time and score, which we talked about earlier, I, I, I think that I have a habit of every time I write the number three down, like every third down, I always try and review time and score, right? Um, so that down in distance. And then I think the one thing that, that I picked up on early, and it actually came from a football coach more than it came from any other broadcaster, was I had a football coach one time when I was doing games in college. I was doing high school football. And the, and the coach said to me, this is just a local high school coach. He said, you know what I like about it? He goes, I like every once in a while, you tell me what the formations are. You tell me the way they line up. And I, that stuck with me for some reason, right? And then when I went to Marshall, Lee Moon told me, the reason I hired you was because the high school game I heard you do on tape, you gave me the formations. And he was an old football coach. So I always think it's important to tell people the way they're lined up. And in today's game, especially at the college level, they can line up a thousand ways now. But to that point, you know what's made the game tougher on radio at the college level is the high-tempo stuff. makes it very difficult. Uh, you, you don't want to trap your analysts. You're always trying to let your analysts breathe and have the game, and it's harder on radio. In the NFL, we got a little bit more pragmatic approach to it. Not many teams go fast. But in college, and we deal with it in television quite a bit, you know, especially when you get somebody amped up like Syracuse who wants to run 100 plays a game. It becomes tough, but I like to give formation uh, down in distance, things like that. Um, any changes? I've been fortunate with Falcons to have a great spotter for 14 years now, um, who you know is real good with identif- identifying changes, especially as a, you know line play on defense and that kind of thing. So those are the real basics for me. Once the play starts, I think um, you need to look at your vocabulary. I think you can only say Matt Ryan passes the ball, Matt Ryan throws the ball, Matt Ryan fires the ball a finite number of times. I think you have to come up with other words. I think you really have to expand your vocabulary. That was one of my dad's things. Um, Second is I want to know where he catches the ball. Did he catch it on the left side? Did he catch it at the 30? Uh, Was he inside? Did he catch it on a slant? Did he catch it in front of the bench? And then who made the play? Who made the tackle? Who did he break free from? Did he, did he do something athletic? I mean, every time Julio does something, I feel like I have to invent a new word. I mean, <laughs> but what did he do to keep the play alive? Did he spin away? And then deliver the excitement. If it's an exciting play for your team, deliver the play. Uh, deliver the play and have an expectation of the play. Don't try to make Sports Center. Just do the basics, and I think the rest of it takes care of itself. In fact, it's, it's really kind of amazing because after every – game there you know has been a penultimate play like the calvin johnson catch in 2004 his first year at georgia tech where they beat clemson late in the game i had no idea what i said and i don't really know what i say sometimes and i think that's kind of the way i've become accustomed to it because that means i'm not thinking about it i just let the play go and you know people seem to be people seem to think that's really weird but at the same time it kind of has worked for me i guess 
Wes, what was the transition from radio to TV like for you? I know um, for me, it was tough not having to talk all the time. It's like mm. I'm Italian. So in a conversation, I like to use my hands in a conversation. It's like not knowing what to do with your so hands. So does Coach Saban, but that's another story for another time, I guess. What was that um, like for you going from having to describe everything to now you're a part of a bigger team? It's not yeah. necessarily your masterpiece that you're painting. It's much different. Well, good question. And, uh, Two real short answers. Number one, when it was announced that I was going to leave Georgia Tech and I was going to go to television, I got a phone call from Mike Tirico, who I had known a little bit but didn't know as well as I do now. And I got a lot of confidence from the phone call because he said, you're going to be great. And I said, oh, well, thanks. And he said, no, no, you're going to be great. And I said, well, how's that? And he goes, because you've done radio long enough that if you're going to prepare for TV like you prepare for radio, nothing will ever get by you. Okay, I'll I'll take that as a as a good thing. And Mike then also said, he's the one that told me it's the analyst game. He said, you know, you're going to work with an analyst. It's their game, but you'll know exactly how to fill the cracks. And so there's your answer to the first part. The second part was Craig Ritchie, who is now the uh, executive producer of Fox Sports Arizona. Basically, he and Randy Stevens, who's the EP or is the general manager of Fox Sports Ohio, the two that hired me to come to work on the ACC package in 2013. And Craig Ritchie, I had known a little bit before Randy, I had no idea of. And Randy said, you got great command of the game on radio and you do a really good job on television in the little bit I've seen. He goes, you'll let this game breathe just by your instincts. And they were very good with me the first month I did football and early stages of basketball of kind of letting me know where I might not be letting the game breathe. The last part of your question is this, Kyle. I was committed when I went to television that I knew radio was a three-man move. It was the engineer, the board op, and me. I knew television was a bigger game. And I'm always of the belief that you can throw the perfect game somewhere and I've come close in television. I was a part of a Duke Carolina semifinal in the ACC tournament two years ago that I thought was as good a broadcast as I've ever been on. Now, obviously, helped when you had Zion Williamson and all these different kind of players, Luke May and what, and it was Duke Carolina. But we had a crew that night of 24 people that were locked in on trying to make it a great game and just an ACC semifinal. It came down to a last shot and that kind of deal. I think if you're chasing the perfect game, and you realize you're not going to get it, but you can still chase it every time, to me, that's what that's what the teamwork of television is about. And I'm pretty interested in everybody. I want to be a team guy in this. I'm not trying to be the guy who's a step or two above. I'm, I want to know exactly what the graphics folks have got. Tell me what you're building. Where can we help you? You know, how do we set stuff up, that type deal? I think that's a big part of being a teammate on television. And that's why, like, there's no game that's not interesting to me. People, when I went to Fox, people said, well, you're not going to do very good games. Yeah, but I'm going to do a game, and the game's going to be interesting. How do I, you know, what are the storylines we can develop when Central Michigan plays Syracuse or, you know, whatever. The, Louisville plays Murray State. I mean, Louisville's going to win. Lamar Jackson might get two reps, and that'll be it, but Louisville's going to win the game. So how do we make Louisville-Murray State interesting? You know, that's, that's the challenge you face in television. And to the point you guys made earlier, so many games are on television now that you have to think about that. What can I do to keep somebody there after they look at my mug for you know a minute and a half on a stand-up? What, what else can we do to draw them in? And I think that's one of our challenges as broadcasters, too. How do we tell the story in the first 90 seconds of a game, radio or TV, to make people want to stay, and maybe not stay all the time, 
but at least keep us in those three or four channels they want to keep you know monitoring as the afternoon or evening unfolds final one for me Wes. favorite uh venue to call a game college and nfl atmosphere wise maybe you can even throw in broadcast booth wise there's a lot of nfl booths now that are cornered off so like a lot of these are t- some tough locations to call games. So if you combine atmosphere and booth locate location, what do you got? Um, man, I could go some places on booth locations too. Um, <laughs> That's only going to get worse, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid. Um, well, Lambeau Field in Green Bay to me is, you know, I don't tell people to go many places, but. You know, I have I play enough golf that there are places when people say, "Would you like to go play here?" and you have a high expectation, and you get there and you think, "Ah, it's not quite as you know good as I thought it was going to be." Lambeau Field was not only as good as I thought it was going to be; it was better, and it was nine degrees. Okay, I mean, you want the full treatment. Nobody should ever go to Lambeau Field in September. You should always go like from mid-November to the end of the regular season because that's where you get the full effect. Uh, so Lambeau Field to me, booth location and just the whole deal, right? I mean, all the things you hear about it come true at Lambeau Field. Uh, Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas, to me, it, I've done one basketball game there, and it was sensational. Georgia Tech didn't win the game, and I just had a great experience there. Um, I will say sitting upstairs at Old Memorial Gym in Nashville in the early 90s when I did basketball there was tremendous. And I couldn't believe we were up there. And then the first time we did a big game from up there, I was so glad we were up there. Um, Smith Center in Chapel Hill has always been special to me because I grew up a Carolina fan. So doing TV or radio for there has always meant a lot to me, especially because of my dad. But now I, I like John Paul Jones of Virginia. They're very, very educated Virginia basketball fans. They love the way Tony Bennett plays, and that's been good for me. Um, college football. I, I tell you – I got, I love Knoxville. I enjoyed Gainesville. Um, I uh, I liked Old Commonwealth Stadium in Lexington. I hear they've moved the booth now. Um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have a bad venue in the SEC. I like going to Tuscaloosa. I like going to Auburn. Um, Naval Academy is sensational. Everybody ought to go to Annapolis. Notre Dame is sensational. I've done three games at Notre Dame. Three games, two games at Notre Dame. Uh, for football, and I think I think the check marks are. I've been to Michigan, but I never did a game there. Ann Arbor is sensational on game day. I went in the late 1990s when Tom Brady was the quarterback of the Wolverines, and they beat Penn State with Lavar Arrington and Brandon Short, and it was it was a sensation. I was still on the sidelines for that game. It was phenomenal. I've uh, never been to anything that big, that loud, that intense. From the time they run out and you hear them play Hail to the Victors, and you're thinking, whoa. I mean, this is this is the real deal. So that's the short list. How's that? I like it. Sounds pretty good. Well, this will be my final question. And a lot of times near the end, we ask uh, all these broadcasters for advice, uh, especially for younger broadcasters just starting to get into it. Kind of curious your advice for guys like Kyle and I. We're both uh, women's basketball voices of a Power 5 school. We've got a little bit of TV tape from SEC Network Plus. Uh, What would you tell us to do to keep chasing down our goals of either being the voice of a Power 5 school or be a network television voice? What would you tell us and a lot of people who are watching in a similar spot to do? Uh, it's a good question. I think this business, and we talked about earlier, understanding the business of the business, I think that's really important. I think understanding it's a team game. You know, we were just talking about, you know, how valuable TV is because of the group you got working with you. And I think you can always learn something, too. I've spent, you know, probably way too much time in the pandemic 
watching YouTube games of like games on YouTube from the seventies and eighties. And my wife walked in one night and goes, why are you watching this game? And I said, cause I want to hear Keith Jackson do the game because I want to hear the vocabulary. I'm not going to try and sound like Keith Jackson, but what is it that he says that, you know, I could learn from the other thing too. I watch a lot of things like these. I told you guys before we started, I, I mean, I like hearing other guys talk about their journey. All of us want to do the same. I mean, when you think about it, all of us want to do the same thing, but we're all going to take a different path to get there. I mean, we're all going to have different things happen. And the people you're going to work with along the way are going to end up potentially being lifelong friends or important friends, um, both professionally and personally. And to me, I didn't realize that early. I mean, I I learned it as I went along. Um, I also think, too, in this business, you have to understand the commitment level to this is different than other jobs. Um, A lot of us are divorced. A lot of us have remarried, kids, that kind of thing. It's a hard life. But it's a life that it, it, it's a life that keeps giving back to you. It's not easy. You don't make a lot of money per se, but it keeps giving you back. And you do something different that only you understand the creative level for, and the people you work with understand the creative level. Um, and by the way, the parking it's it's okay still. Press food's okay, and usually we had a really good spot to watch the game. But to what you said earlier, maybe we're not going to have spots as good as we used to have. But, I mean, when you add it all up, it's it's a pretty damn good deal. I mean, and that's the thing I keep telling guys. First job was the hardest to get. Every other job since then, I've used experience from the other job to learn along the way. And just be a you know, Bronco Mendenhall at Virginia uses the term lifelong learner. And that's really what I've tried to do. I, I, at 54, I still want to listen to stories like you guys have or other people you talk to or other announcers. Because I think we can all learn from each other in this industry. It's, it's too damn hard not to. You can't think you got it figured out because there'll be something like, hey, by the way, Wes, you might have to do college football from your house this summer or this fall. You might have to do basketball that way. Okay, so my challenge then is to be flexible and nimble and learn it. Well, clearly, we haven't figured it all out. Well, you've given us a lot of great advice throughout this entire hour plus. And plenty of more than an hour, too, by the way, which uh, (laughs) that's embarrassing. So I I told you I wouldn't take more than an hour, and I probably did, so I'm sorry. No, we could have gone two or three with the way this was going. But, Wes, this has been excellent, exactly what we were looking for. Just thank you for your time, and all the best as we hope to have some broadcasts coming up for you very soon. Thanks, guys. Same to you all, and really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking. Thanks, Wes. All right, our thanks to Wes Durham. Thanks for watching this edition of Broadcaster Hour.